This morning we are going to continue looking uh, in the book of Acts and uh, continue in this series. So if you have Bibles, you can turn to Acts uh, chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be reading the last few verses of uh, this section. And we're going to be looking at the habits of those first followers of Jesus Christ. So, so this week has gotten me thinking uh, a good bit about habits. And uh, one of the things I was reminded of is that we all have habits and that sometimes we have good habits, and sometimes we have bad habits. Uh, one of my bad habits, and my wife will be the first to tell you this, is that I have the tendency to put uh, dirty dishes in the sink when I should put them in the dishwasher. And the dishwasher is right next to the sink. I really have no excuse for it whatsoever, uh, but I don't do it. It's as if the dishwasher isn't even there. I don't even see it. So that's a bad habit that I have. Uh, but there have been other times in my life where, where I've had good habits too. There's been times in my life where I've disciplined myself to, to get up early in the morning and, and exercise before I go to work. And uh, when I first started doing it, it was really hard to get up early in the morning and to do those things. But as I worked at it and committed to it, uh, then it got easier and I appreciated it as well. So that was a good habit. And one of the things I've been reminded of this week is that much of our life is informed by our habits. Whether those habits are good ones or whether they are bad ones, whether they are healthy routines that we engage in or unhealthy routines, but all of them often happen to us at a subconscious level. We don't even often realize uh, what we are doing. Now, when it comes to the faith, we get very shy about talking about habit and the power of habit when it comes to our faith. Uh, when we think about habit, we think of things like stifling routines, and, and the faith shouldn't be about that. It should be about the spontaneous work of the Spirit. And I think one of the fears that we have is that if we talk about habits when it comes to, the, to faith— we will devolve into some sort of joyless uh, legalism. But sometimes I wonder if we go to the opposite extreme as well, that in an effort to avoid legalism, we sometimes throw out the power and the value of habit. So the book of Acts that is written by uh, Luke tells us about the first steps of Jesus's followers, and we, we learn about what a powerful movement uh, that this was. And so the first week we looked at this, we saw that there was great power in this movement, and that that power came from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Last week we looked at the marks of this movement, or the marks of these first followers of Jesus, and we saw that they were characterized by faith and repentance. But what Acts tells us is it tells us about the very powerful habits Jesus' first followers engaged in as well. And we read about them in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 to 47. So uh, you can follow along in your copy of God's Word, uh, follow along in the bulletin uh, or in the screen provided. This is God's Word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching— and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we encounter your word, we pray that the words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of our hearts as we reflect on your word would be pleasing to you this morning. Change us as we encounter the power of your word as we encountered the power of your Spirit, using your word to shape our hearts this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. My, uh, my oldest son, I had to get his permission to share with you this illustration, uh, but my oldest son has a YouTube channel. And I didn't know really what this was, uh, but he had to explain it all to me. And uh, with a YouTube channel, you post little videos and uh, you get subscribers and people can follow your videos and, uh, and subscribe to what you post. And uh, by and large, my oldest didn't have a whole lot of subscribers until this week. And what happened this week is he posted a video and then some popular YouTuber out there uh, reposted his video. And uh, within minutes, he had uh, a substantial amount more subscribers uh, to his channel. It was as if uh, his numbers of subscribers had tripled within one day. And he was pretty proud of that and pretty proud of his growth. Well, our passage this morning talks about a similar growth, but this time related to God's people, the church. And in this case, it was... uh, It was about God's Spirit moving within the context of his community right after Jesus had had, uh, ascended back into heaven. And what our passage does this morning is it connects that remarkable growth of these first followers of Jesus with the habits that they had engaged in day in and day out. But we have to take note that when we think about their habits, we ought not to think of them as drudgery because it was not drudgery for them. These were joyful habits. These were habits that they couldn't wait to engage in, that they eagerly engaged in each day because it was their delight. It was their joy to engage in these things. And what our passage talks about is it talks about the habits of these first followers really in two categories. One of the habits was their fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, and it describes this powerful community life that these first followers of Jesus shared with one another. And it's so powerful and it's so important that I didn't want to even tackle it in one sermon. So we're going to talk about that side of their habits next week. But what I wanted to talk about this morning is is the other thing that you see in this passage, and that is their habit of worship. What we see in them is that they valued and prioritized worship together. It wasn't just some side habit that they would engage in if they had nothing better to do. Instead, worship for them was the pinnacle of their spiritual lives. It was the pinnacle of their week. It was the pinnacle of everything that they did, the pinnacle of their habits. See, verse 42 and 46 both use an a important Greek word. And uh, in your translation, it probably says devoted. But when you look at the actual Greek, it, it carries a much fuller meaning than just the word devoted. 
it speaks of them being continually devoted, not just a one-time devotion, but a continuous one. They were continuous, steadfastly. They, they cleaved steadfast. That's what this word means. They cleaved steadfastly to worship. They committed to it intentionally, devoting themselves to the habit of worship. You see it in verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, they engaged in worship. Now, James K.A. Smith is one of my uh, favorite authors out there, and he talks a lot about the spiritual power of habit. And one of his best books is a book called You Are What You Love. And in that book, he talks about how powerful habits are and how our habits often inform the things that we desire and the things that we love. And uh, I thought about this, that this week and, and thought about even my own uh, like for running. If you know me, you know I like to run. But it wasn't always that way. Uh, when I started running in high school, uh, I didn't really like it. Um, it was hard. It was painful. I sweated a lot. It was difficult. And the next day, I was always really, really sore. So I wondered why I was doing this. But the more I stuck with it, the more I continued to run and got more in the habit of running, the more I began to love it, the more it enfolded my desires and my loves. And that's what habit does for us. It informs our loves and our desires. And some of those habits we can choose, like I did with running, but other habits are often imposed upon us. In fact, the habits of our world And the habits of our culture bear upon us every single day. And some are good, most are not. And that is why I think the first century church knew that worship was important. James K. Smith writes this. He says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reorients our desires, and rehabits our loves. Worship isn't just something we do, it is where God does something to us. Worship is at the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Now, I don't have to tell you that the, the, the habit of worship, especially public worship, is becoming increasingly challenged in our world and in our culture today. There are just so many things that just demand of our time, demand of our attention, and demand our energy. We as a family deal with that day in and day out each week as we're involved in things and our kids are involved in things. But one of the things that we must remember is that worship is a means by which God forms our hearts. And if we don't make worship the priority that God wants us to, if we don't make it a priority as these first believers did, then we shouldn't be surprised when the world has a more formative effect on our hearts than God's Scripture does. In fact, what will happen is we will easily unchurch ourselves through our habits if we are not careful. And that's why we need to rehabit our hearts each week. We have to recalibrate our hearts to what matters. And at times it takes commitment, at times it takes devotion, at times it takes making priorities and sticking to them. At times it means saying no to even really good things. Because this is the truth. 
The way we prioritize, where we spend our time, is even in itself a spiritual habit. Now, one of the things that we see here is that it isn't just enough for us simply to be in the habit of worship or simply just gather for worship. We see here that there is substance to it as well. That there is a substance to worship that rehabits our hearts, and our passage tells us all about it. And it kind of speaks to a bigger question, and that is, what makes church healthy? Or what are the marks that makes worship what it is intended to be? Because the common thought within the church world today is that the success of a church should be measured in things that aren't necessarily in the Scriptures. Often we can fall in the temptation to thinking that the success of a church is wrapped in really big budgets and really big uh, attendance numbers. People inside the church call it budgets and butts in the seats, right? And there's there's a great temptation to think that that's what the ingredients are to make the church healthy. And don't get me wrong, those things are important. If nobody showed up here on a Sunday morning, it would be very hard for us to do worship. So those things are important. But what this passage gives us is it gives us the essential ingredients for what the health of the church looks like, the essential ingredients for what true worship is. And the first ingredient we see is in verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, they were committed to learning the Scriptures and being formed by the Scriptures. They, they deeply desired, with every ounce, every fiber of their being, they deeply desired to know Jesus and to know the good news of the gospel. They realized that that these ideas of faith and repentance were something that they had to continually grow in. It wasn't just something that automatically happened. They realized that they needed the gospel to sink deeply into their souls, to not just impact them on the peripheral levels, but sink to the deepest parts of who who they were. They wanted to think through the implications of the gospel. What does the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean in the history of redemption? But also, what does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to them and their lives and their behaviors day in and day out? How ought the gospel change them? How ought the gospel change us? How how should it change our priorities, our desires, and our habits? You see, there's a great uh, cultural drift, and I I feel it as a pastor. Uh, There's a great cultural drift to simply make the church about morality and good ethics. And often what this drift looks like is that that people come to church, and and what they want is just a few extra good healthy points uh, to make their lives fuller uh, and to make their lives more meaningful. And, uh, and what happens often is we lose the gospel in that cultural drift. And let me tell you this, to be perfectly honest, if, if that is what you want out of a pastor, you've hired the wrong guy. <laughs> 
Because often when I look at my life, I, I, I look at a bigger mess than I do things that are neat and tidy. I look at daily struggles, uh, constant anxieties, lots and lots of difficulties. So in many ways, I am the last person to give you different tips on what it means to live a healthy and meaningful and wonderful life. But isn't it good news that that's not what this is all about? Isn't it good news that all of this is really about the gospel? Not about tips on living well or how to treat others better, even though those implications come from the gospel. First and foremost, what we are here to do is to to think deeply about the good news of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is what makes us unique Other institutions can offer great morality and great tips on on good lives and, and how to live a more successful or fulfilled life. But what the church offers is this. It offers to us the gospel. It's the thing that makes this institution unique and makes it powerful. And that's why the gospel in the first century church and what needs to be true of us as well, the gospel must be central. And one of the things that we do is we celebrate the gospel in the context of God's word, the preaching of God's word. But what we recognize is that it also has to be central in what we call the sacrament. And that's what you see in our passage as well. If, if, it's in, if, if they centralize themselves on the apostles' teaching, what we see is they also centralize themselves on the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, that, that definite article that is in that passage tells us that they are really talking about the Lord's Supper, that certainly they were breaking bread with one another in the context of their homes and in community of life, but what they are speaking of, at least in this passage, is the celebration, the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so if the preaching of the gospel engages our minds and our hearts, what does the Lord's Supper do? The Lord's Supper engages our other senses, our senses of smell and taste and touch. And something powerful happens as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you remember the story in Luke uh, 24 where uh, Jesus has has, um, uh, resurrected from the dead, but he is yet to ascend to heaven. And Luke tells us that two of Jesus' followers are traveling on the road to Emmaus. And they come upon a stranger, and we know from the reading of the scriptures that that stranger is the risen Lord. It's Jesus Christ himself. But for some reason, those travelers' eyes were blinded to the fact that this is who Jesus was. They have this incredible conversation where they, they recount their hearts burning inside of themselves. But do you remember when it was that they finally recognized who they were talking to? The passage tells us that when they broke bread together, they recognized that this person who they'd been speaking to was the risen Lord. And friends, it is no different for us today. When we break this bread together, we recognize that the risen Lord is in our midst. 
You see, the first followers of Jesus were committed to the preached word. They were committed to the practice of the Lord's Supper, the practice of the sacrament. It is these things that made this institution unique amongst all others. There is no other place in their day, there is no other place in our culture today that lifts up the word and the sacraments where they are held in high esteem. But there's one other thing that we also see in our passage We see that they broke bread together. We see that they uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Finally, we see that they devoted themselves to the prayers. They prayed personally. They prayed together in their homes in the context of community. They prayed corporately when they gathered together for worship. Prayer was central, essential to what they were doing. They were committed to the life of prayer. They realized that their power source had nothing to do with their know-how. Their power source had nothing to do with their ingenuity or their ability to manufacture movements within the culture. They recognized that all of their power was from God himself. And the way they tapped into, the way they accessed the very power of God in their midst was through prayer. And the same is true for you and I. Now what Luke tells us in this passage is what the result of all this was. The result was awe, the result was amazement, and the result was incredible growth. It says in in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. That's not just people who were in the church. Everyone, even from the outside, was looking upon them in amazement as to what God was doing in their midst. And verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who who were being saved. Friends, perhaps the church today has become anemic and sick because we have strayed away from what worship is truly all about. Because what we discover in this passage is that worship's object, the object, the point of all this is the risen Lord. The point of all this is to reflect deeply on Christ's death and his resurrection. His sacrifice for humanity must always be the ultimate object in which we worship. But friends, as I've thought about that this week, and maybe as you are reflecting on this now, if we are all honest with ourselves, as we think about this, we have to recognize what the gospel tells us. And what the gospel often reminds us, what it convicts us of, is that our devotions, if we are honest with ourselves, tend to be very weak. Our devotions tend to be weak. We are people who have divided hearts, who tend to be committed to all sorts of lesser things. We tend to be half-hearted creatures, and our commitment to God, our worship of Him, tends to be thin and very often very slim. And so what do we do? Well, we do what ought to be the center of everything we do. We look to the gospel. And when we look to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what does it do? It shows us a Savior who wasn't weak in his devotion. It shows us a Savior who wasn't weak in his commitments. It shows us a Savior who devoted himself to you and I. 
And his devotion was so strong, it was so single-minded, it was so committed that it even led him to the cross where he devoted himself up for us in the most beautiful work of grace. One of the commentators wrote this. He said this. He said, the point is this. It was not easier in the first century than it is in the 20th century to come together and stay together in genuine Christian community. There were no fewer distractions, no fewer temptations towards selfish, aloof individualism, protection of one's privacy. Yet in the early church, we see a gathering of people who rejoiced to be together consistently, to eat, to share, and to serve together. What was the force that bound them together? Well, it was the grace of God. And friends, grace was the foundation of that first church, and it is the foundation of what we do here today. It is the foundation of today's church. It isn't our good habits, ultimately, that earn our way back to God. It isn't our devotion that somehow merits God's devotion. Instead, it is His devotion to us that is the foundation of the gospel. And the good news is this. It is all about grace from start to finish. Let's pray.